Last weekend was the church retreat, and then also here, uh, Jonathan Schultz preached for us. But prior to that, we had begun a series going through the Apostles' Creed. You know, a lot of times we're going directly through a book of the Bible, but we'll take times like this to explore something a little bit different, and we're doing that right now with the Apostles' Creed. Um, we have these great bookmarks there in your seat in front of you or out in the lobby that has the creed on it that you can, uh, that you can get a hold of and have with you. Uh, usually our process has been to talk about the creed, but then to also look at a passage of Scripture that reinforces that language that we're looking at from that particular day in the creed. And so that's what we'll be doing today. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, Hebrews chapter 12, and particularly the language of Jesus being suffering under Pontius Pilate, being crucified, dying, and being buried. So make sure you get one of those uh, great-looking bookmarks. Um, part of the reason that we do something like this, one that we print those bookmarks out for you to have and to see and to recite, but also why we say the Apostles' Creed frequently here at church and why we do a sermon series about it is because we're in a, a time of contested belief. Pastor Dan talked about this when he started this series talking about I believe at the beginning. Why is it important for us to have a confession to say together that we believe in something? Why does the Apostles' Creed matter? Well, it doesn't take much effort in our culture today. You can go on social media, you can watch the news, you can even just talk to your neighbor, and you're going to hear a dozen different takes on what's true on what you should believe, on what you should believe in. There was a recent state of theology poll that was done among evangelical Christians in the U.S., and these were some of the results. One in four said that the Bible was an account of ancient myths and not literally true. One in three said that religious beliefs are a matter of opinion and not based on objective truth. And nearly half, 43%, said that Jesus was a great teacher, but not actually God. That's among American evangelical Christians. Now, you know, we all know that these days evangelical has become almost more political than it has become religious. But the point remains that Christian belief, Christian essentials of the faith, are a question mark for many people. They've either not sure what they believe or they've turned away from essential Christian beliefs completely. And so it's important for us to talk about what it is that we believe. We talk about these because they remind us of the truth. They remind us of our identity. You know, we come to a place like this from lots of different backgrounds, lots of different families and histories. But the thing that brings us together is that we believe in something together. When we give the commitment of, I believe in something, that shapes us and it forms us into a community that's united with a common purpose and a common mission. Now, the Apostles' Creed, as we've talked about before, is not on the same level as the Bible. We believe the Bible alone is our authority for faith and for practice, but we do believe that the Apostles' Creed is a summary of the essential beliefs of Christianity. It's one that the church has always held for 2,000 years to be a faithful summary of Christian belief. And so 
Even today, churches all day long in their worship services all over the world are going to be reciting the Apostles' Creed. They're going to be talking about it. They're going to be memorizing it. Churches have done that for 2,000 years. And we're part of that stream of unity. So in this series, as we go through it, what we've been doing is looking at the creed, but then pulling a place from Scripture that reinforces that language. Where do we get that language from? Where does the creed come from in the Scripture? And how do those statements, those beliefs that it talks about, how do they shape our identity? How are they part of us? So a few weeks ago, Dan again introduced our series with, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. And then a couple weeks ago before the retreat, Pastor Zach led us through the first of four looks at Jesus. Zach talked about what we call the incarnation, about how God, how Jesus is both God and man. His statement was, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And so we're picking up where that left off this week with suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The passage we're going to be looking at this morning, you can turn there, is Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. It's on page 1008 of the Pew Bible, if you're using that one. If you have your own Bible, uh, go to chapter 12 of Hebrews. I'm going to read it, and then I'll give a quick statement on why I chose this particular passage for our purpose this morning, and then we'll get started. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. So the reason that I chose this particular passage is I want to focus in on that idea of Jesus' suffering. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. Right? That expands on the ways in which Jesus suffered. But what I like about this passage is that it gets at the heart and mind that Jesus had in the midst of his suffering. Why did he suffer? What was he thinking and feeling at the time? And how does that shape, as his followers, how we should approach suffering? Because you may not like to hear this, but a major part of our identity as followers of Jesus is people who suffer. Every writer in the New Testament says that this is true. Jesus himself said that in this world you'll have trouble. That if they persecuted him, that they'll persecute you. That we can't follow Jesus without taking up our own cross. Paul says that everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. And that we're going to share in Jesus' suffering and become like him in his death. Peter says that since Jesus suffered in the flesh, we will also, and that we shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes. James, Jesus' own brother, said that we should rejoice when we face suffering. So none of them 
Jesus, his closest followers, his own brother, had the slightest inclination that Christians were going to avoid suffering alongside of Jesus in this life. For them, the question was not if it was going to happen, but when. But if you live in this world, you know that's not the message you hear a lot. It's not the message you hear from the culture. It's not the message you even hear in a lot of churches. Right? Often what I hear being taught is that, that Jesus suffered so that you don't have to. Jesus suffered so that you can live your best life now. In America, all of your life is designed to avoid suffering and to achieve as much comfort as possible. If you just get enough money, if you just get the right technology, the newest iPhone, if you just get enough house, the right spouse, the right car, if your kids do well enough at sports, you'll be comfortable. You won't suffer. If that's what we're hearing from the world, and even sometimes inside the church, how do we reconcile that with what the Bible seems to clearly say about suffering? How do we respond to suffering? That's our question this morning. How do we respond to suffering? Now, I know because suffering is being told to us that it's wrong, that it shouldn't be happening. When it does happen, if you're like me, you ignore it or you hide it, or you push it under the rug. How many of us come from families where there was conflict and there was suffering, and so the way we processed it was just ignore it, just not talk about it, just don't pretend that it's not happening. Is that the approach that we should take to suffering? Well, I want to encourage us this morning that there's another approach, the approach that Jesus took and the approach that he encourages us to take alongside of him. And so how do we respond to suffering? We're going to look at two ways. How did Jesus respond and how do we respond? Let's look first at Jesus. What was Jesus's approach to suffering? Well, verse 2 and 3 tell us there's a repeated word in there about what Jesus did in suffering. He endured. Endurance. Verse 2 says that he endured the cross. Verse 3 says that he endured hostility from sinners. The Greek word there for endurance can also be translated that he remained under. In other words, Jesus chose in the midst of suffering to remain under it. Now for us, suffering comes and isn't usually avoidable, right? We don't have the ability always to escape the suffering that comes into our lives. Because if we did, then we always would, right? At least that's what we're taught. Always avoid suffering at all costs. But God in the flesh, as Zach told us a couple weeks ago, Jesus, God in the flesh, did have the ability to avoid suffering. Did have the ability to escape from it. The ancient church father, John Christosom, said it this way, it was in Jesus's power, if he so willed, not to suffer at all. At his arrest, Jesus told his disciples, I could call down 12 legions of angels right now to protect me if I wanted to. So of all the human beings that ever existed, Jesus had the greatest ability to avoid suffering. 
But instead, the text tells us that he chose to remain under it, to endure it. Why? Well, look back at the text again, verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Joy. Jesus' ultimate driving passion wasn't comfort. It wasn't to avoid suffering. It was joy. Joy in what? One commentator says it this way, Jesus had a goal on which his attention was inflexibly fixed. The joy of completing the work of reconciliation that he had come to perform. To bring to fruition all the purposes of God's creation and all the promises of God's covenant. That is a fancy way of saying Jesus' joy was you. And it was me. And it was the restoration of everything in his creation. That goal, that joy was Jesus' primary heart motivation. The redemption and restoration of all of his creation. His joy was every single person that comes to know him and experience the new life. It was every time his creation is redeemed and restored to the way that it was supposed to be. Jesus suffered the most that a person can suffer. He endured the greatest suffering. Now, I don't just mean the cross. There are people that had died before Jesus had on a cross. There were people that died after him on a cross. I don't just mean that he was rejected by the people that he came for. He's not the first person to be rejected by society. I don't mean that he was betrayed by his friends. Other people have been. I don't mean that he was tortured and hung on a cross. That's happened to others as well. But Jesus went a step further when he took all of the sin of the world onto himself. All of the brokenness of creation onto himself. Jesus suffered greater than any person has ever been suffered before. How could he endure? That's how great the joy was that was set before him. Not only that, the text says in verse 2, that he despised the shame of the cross. The word there for despise means to he dismissed it. He didn't even pay attention to it. Think about that as it relates to sin. How often do you feel shame when you sin? I do all the time. Jesus had all of your sin and everyone else's and was able to despise the shame, to pay no regard to it. How? That's how great the joy was. The joy of redemption compared to the guilt and the shame and the weight of sin is nothing. That's how Jesus was able to endure. And that leads us to our second point. How do we respond to suffering? Well, verse 2 tells us, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. When you feel weighed down by your sin, by the sin of others, look to Jesus. When you feel shame about your sin, look to Jesus. When you feel weary, when you feel faint-hearted from the suffering that's happening in your life or the people around you, 
Look to Jesus. Because Jesus endured all the way to the grave so that joy would be finished and won for you. The work is finished. It tells us that. Where is Jesus now? He's seated at the right hand of the throne. If Jesus is sitting down, that means there's no more work. Jesus has finished all the work that needs to be done. He earned for us all of the joy. Philip Hughes, a New Testament scholar, said it this way, the cross is the gateway to joy, his joy and yours. So we share in Jesus' sufferings, but always while also experiencing the power of the resurrection. So there's no suffering that can defeat you. There's no suffering that can win because Jesus has already won. And so in your moments of greatest suffering, in your moments of greatest shame, in your moments of greatest doubts and uncertainty, you look to Jesus who's seated next to God because he's already won everything that can be won for you. He's already defeated all of the suffering. Now that doesn't mean we don't still experience suffering in this world. We certainly do. But we experience it with the confidence of the resurrection. The confidence that we can endure. The confidence that we can despise shame, not live under it, because it has no power over us. Suffering might knock you down, but you can get back up. It might even, in this life, kill you. But it cannot stop you from rising up from the grave in resurrection. Now, that's encouraging news, but it's still really hard to suffer, right? Everyone in here has suffered in some way. If you haven't suffered, I don't know what world you're living in, because it comes for all of us. I know some of you have experienced some of the worst suffering that you can ever experience. So I want to end this morning with one more word of encouragement in the midst of the pain that still comes with suffering. And that's that you aren't alone in trying to endure. Right? Sometimes it can feel like it's just me and Jesus. And he endured. He's in heaven now, but I'm left here by myself. I want you to know that you're not alone. The Bible uses in many places in our passage this morning an illustration of running a race. The Christian life is described as a race. I don't know how many of you have ever run in a race before. I know some of you have. Uh, I've run not in a, in a race in the typical way. I played high school soccer and my coach loved to make us run. And in summer tryouts every year, we had to finish this five-mile run under a certain amount of time to make the team. So that was my race. We would do it over and over again through the summer. We would run to try to get our time down, to try to build up our endurance. But there were a few guys who always really, really struggled to make the time. And of course, as a team, we came together and said, how do we best help these other guys to make the time? And you know what we found was the best way to help them? It was to have someone run with them who had already been able to finish it in the time, who could point them toward the finish line. 
When they fell down, they could lift them up. When their lungs were burning and they were, wanted to walk, could say, no, keep going, you can do this. Have someone run with them that could point them towards the finish, could point them towards the victory that was already theirs. Someone that could endure with them. Verse 1 talks about the race of faith for Christians. And what it does is begin by referring back to chapter 11, which is famously called the Hall of Faith. And it's stories about Christians who had followed through suffering and remained faithful. And then it says, since we're surrounded by these other witnesses, we too can run the race. We can keep our eyes on Jesus. We can endure. And the message of that is that we need one another and that Jesus didn't leave us alone. The Christian life was never intended to be run as a race with just you and Jesus. He gave us one another to run with. At the retreat, the Bible used another illustration for that. It called us living stones. And then it said that we were living stones being built up together into a spiritual house. Well, in the same way, we are each runners in the race, running the race together. So who are you running with? Who here that you've, God's placed you in this place with this group of people. Who are you running with? Who, who needs your help right now? Who's struggling under suffering and they need you to come alongside them and run with them? Or maybe you need someone to run with you right now. How are you suffering this morning? And who could you ask to come alongside and help you? Who can you share your story with? And invite them in to run alongside you and encourage you towards the victory that Jesus has already won. One of the simplest ways that we can start that is by coming to the table together. When we come to the communion table, we do it every week. When we come and we take the bread and the wine, we're reminded, first of all, whose body and blood it is. Jesus is. So we're looking at him our eyes are on him, but we take it together. We celebrate. Communion should never be solemn. It should be a celebration. It should never be taken individually. It should be taken corporately. It should be a proclamation of the victory that Jesus has already won for us, and we are taking it with one another, reminding each other, this is Jesus' body and blood shed for me and shed for you. Let's take it together. It also gives us spiritual strength to endure as we go out from this place. So as we come to the table, remember those things, and let's take it together. Let me pray. Fathers, we come to the table this morning, do two things. Remind us of whose body and blood it is and why it was shed for the forgiveness of sins that Jesus endured for joy for us, but also strengthen us spiritually through it. Strengthen us in the bond of unity of the faith with one another. Strengthen us through your spiritual power that comes through it so that we might endure in the footsteps of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.